Welcome to Turning Conscience into Action, the Earth Charter Podcast. Join Miriam Vilela, Earth Charter International Executive Director, in her fascinating conversations with great thinkers, scholars, and activists from around the world who are working in the fields of sustainability, ethics, education, and social transformation. Our purpose is to generate new insights on how to face current global challenges and inspire informed action. Okay, so today I am having the pleasure of uh, welcoming Steve Sterling uh, that is here with you, with us. And uh, thank you so much, Steve, for joining us today and be willing to share so much of your knowledge and uh, wisdom with us. Thank you. So, Steve, in brief, um, what is your own take on uh, on education uh, for current times? Uh, what do we need to rethink in terms of education and learning for a more sustainable world? And also, how does it relate to transformative learning and ESD? Okay, so, um, <laughs> well, hello, Marion, hello, everybody. So, um, the, the only t the only words which worry me there is in brief, but I'll do I'll do my best because because it's such a big topic, um, and I want to just contextualise it a little bit because I've been working on this issue for something like forty years. Um, I came in on it uh, on the occasion of the UN Conference on the Human Environment in nineteen seventy two, and ever since then. Um, you know, my question to myself and everybody else is what is the role of education in relation to what were then seen as environmental issues, but now more broadly sustainability issues, and now even you know, the future of, the, of uh, the planet and so on. So these are extraordinarily important um, issues and uh, topics. Uh, and I've been working on it for a very, a very long time. And it's a very... Um, very current issue because more and more people are, you know, even people outside this working area are beginning to ask questions about uh, what education is for, uh, as they are in other sectors of human endeavour. So I think the most important question is is that one: what is education for, particularly in, in the context of the multiple crises uh, we find? Um, because. If education is one of the key influences on society, if we agree on that, then it needs to respond fully and openly to the contextual crises that uh, society is, is facing. And I think it's more, more and more apparent if you look at social media and the news and so on. But another aspect of this um, is, you know, if, if education has been going on for, for years and years and years, how come it isn't doing a better job? Um, so I, I think the other aspect is the policy and practice which has perhaps contributed to the crises we are facing because you know it is argued that a lot of mainstream education actually feeds unsustainabilities through uncritically uh, re reproducing uh, norms and competition and only uh, looking at cognitive thinking and so on rewarding conformity um, and, and not really not really encouraging uh, young people to be uh, critical thinkers so and my my argument really is that we're living through volatile and threatened times and uh, education really has to step up to the plate if you like step up to the challenge so i've been talking about rethinking education for 20 30 years uh, and i think it's much more than adding a few environmental or sustainability issues ideas to the curriculum is more if you look at it deeply about rethinking the purpose of education in a threatened world in the last 10 10 years or so there's been a lot of discussion about, about transformative education and transformative learning but i've always argued along with other people that education cannot be transformative in effect unless education itself that is educational thinkers policymakers, and teachers go through some kind of transformative experience themselves, some kind of awakening. So it can happen. Education anew, sorry? So educa transformative education can happen, but unless, uh, it can only happen if policymakers go through a yeah, yeah, yeah. So transformative I think, I think experience. Those, those involved in education, either shaping policy or delivering it, needs to 
think think themselves critically about you know whether education is doing a sufficient job in the context of current realities and i think that's a uh, quite a, a loud question that's being asked now um so it's actually very surprising that uh, many policies around uh, in conventions around sustainability hasn't really put looked very seriously on the role of education uh, as, yeah, that, as a driver for social change that's almost traditional you know i mean i think the problem i wrote a paper for unesco some years ago i, I said that sadly the, the reality is that a lot of sustainable development work doesn't take account of the role of education and a lot of education doesn't take take much account of sustainable development so it's just a double-edged um uh problem i think we i think we're i think we're getting through that but you know there's an urgency to all this um so i'm i'm kind of encouraged on the one hand and want things to speed up on the other if you like yeah. What is transformative education for you? Okay, so I mean, it's, again, it's quite hard to, to <laughs> hard to uh, reply to this quickly, but but um, I make a distinction between uh, education about sustainability, which is really content-led, uh, education for sustainability, which is really where teachers and pupils or students start asking deeper questions about the values which are affecting unsustainable or sustainable patterns so it's it's questioning uh, predominant values if you like and then there's a third stage which which myself and others call as education as sustainability which is a sort of ongoing experiential uh, learning um, situation because of these these issues being so complex and so rapidly changing we need to be learning and relearning all the time so the, the old model of, you know, there, there's the body of knowledge, you, all you need to do is transmit it and, and kids learn it, is, is really not appropriate anymore. So transformative is, is really, is, is pretty much what it says. So it's, 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 it's seeing the world in a new light. And, and those who know my work will mean, know what I mean by that is, is seeing it in a much more connective and systemic and holistic way than is the, the way in conventional education. So you mentioned education about sustainability, education for sustainability, and in the last one is as as sustainability, which which, which means it's an ongoing explorative experiential exercise, if you like, which is which is uh, which is hard to do. You know, not many institutions have managed that. I mean, I I refer to um, Shema College, which is, just happens to be down the road from where I live, where where this kind of work goes on all the time. But within the conventional um institution is, is quite hard to do because it actually goes against against the the structures uh, that most institutions follow but having said that you know i i you know I, I was a teacher for years and i think you can do little what, what, what might i call it like a little sparks of transformation if you like where you see a kid's and kid's eyes light up and go oh i never thought of that before you know that that's a moment of transformation if you like so even, even though i talk about Whole scale system change you can do little stuff you know in the classroom in the lecture theater where you are opening people's eyes to different ways of thinking and being you know, and seeing mm -hmm. so could a teacher or a, a, an institution an educational institution work in these three levels at the same time or like education about well, sustainability I, yeah, I, you know, or sure so some people think of, of, of when i say this that a that you have to jump to this um, transformational level, but that's that's probably not possible, you know, on an institutional basis. So, if you can start with education about sustainability, so at least you have sort of content-led uh, beginnings, if you like, uh, uh, that's that's a good start. You know, I, I wouldn't argue with that. So you can see these as stepping stones, if you like. Yeah, like the idea of seeing these three levels as uh, stepping stones. So let's talk a little bit more about ESD, Education for Sustainability, Education for Sustainable Development. Um, what is okay, that so, for you? Okay, what so, um, well, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but, <laughs> but I, I just happened to be one of the first people to, to use the term Education for Sustainable Development. I remember doing so at a conference in New Zealand nearly 30 years ago. And it came after the Earth Summit held in Rio uh, in 1992, when the idea of sustainable development really came to the fore internationally on the back of the um, 
Brundtland report in 1987. So what was missing in the debate then was, as we just mentioned, Miriam, not much recognition of the potential of education to make a positive difference towards a more sustainable future. So, so this idea of education for sustainable development arose at that time, maybe 30 years ago, and I think it's really, I, I've been surprised ever since how how much it's uh, achieved prominence um, internationally since. And, you know, I think UNESCO should take quite a lot of credit for that, for all the work it's done over, over the years. Um, but I think if you look at it historically, I think ESD didn't emerge in a vacuum, but really derives from, well, I would say two things. Firstly, the sort of liberal and progressive education tradition, which emphasizes the potential of the learner and uh, learner-centered education. And the second thing was all the education for change movements, which have arose in the 1970s, 1980s, and so on, which emphasized the role of the learner in understanding and shaping the world. So I, I think they're the roots, if you like, of, of ESD, but, and it's emerged, you know, quite strongly over the years, but it's, uh, I think that the, it, the exciting thing about it, but also the, 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 the count the break on it, if you like, is it runs counter to the traditions of conventional education, which tends to be reductionist and subject based and cognitive and didactic and target and test driven and thinks of itself as value free. So so that's that's the convention, that's the mainstream largely. And then ESD tends to be more expansive and experiential and open ended, which is why it often has a hard time in conventional settings and uh, institutions but um but you know the, I, in terms of the characteristics i would just sort of echo pretty much what most people are now saying that it addresses values it's holistic in approach it's interdisciplinary sometimes transdisciplinary it's participative as regards futures pedagogies um it's futures orientated it's locally and globally aware and relevant it asks ethical questions it works with real issues and so on and from my point of view, standing back, I think all these characteristics are philosophically are consistent uh, with each other. Um, I can give you a, I can give you my quote, if you like, uh, my definition, which I've used before in, in my sure. writing. So I've written before that uh, ESD is about the kinds of education, teaching, and learning that are required if we are, if we are concerned about ensuring social, economic and ecological well-being now and, in, and into the future in conditions of uncertainty, complexity and, and risk. But I'd also add that uh, a lot of people, for their own reasons, and maybe good reasons, don't like the term ASD, and, and I'm fine with that. So, you know, the, the idea of well-being has come to the fore recently, and I, to be honest, I don't really care what people call it, as long as the values which underpin educational policy and practice are about caring and nurturing and working together to try to ensure safe and healthy future, futures for all. And that, you know, that's why I would say, that's why the Earth Charter is so relevant, because it, it helps us do, do this work. So, so not, you're not very... You know, you're not Sorry. attached to you're not so attached to a term, but what what it happens actually in practice. Well, it's 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 another one, one of these sort of double-edged problems, really, because if you call it ESD as as uh, as many do in UNESCO does, that's great because it communicates. People say, well, what's that mean? And so you say what it means. Um, but if people don't like it or they don't recognize it, they might think, well, I think my my education work is pretty good. You know, you're saying you know it's not ESD, it's therefore it doesn't count. So I, I'm I try to be inclusive, you know. So if people don't like ESD and they've got another term uh, which is informed by similar values, that's fine. That's fine. So let's not let's not exclude people by using a term which they don't recognize. I can I think that's my argument really. Uh, how do you relate ESD with quality of education? Because um, I have been to some countries here in, in Central America, in Latin America, and we, when we try to promote policies on ESD, it, it, we, we find many walls um, from a policy-making point of view because countries have many other 
challenges uh, in priorities. Um, yeah. In one of them, they say, well, we are here concerned with the, the improvement of the quality of our education system. And yeah. I try to argue that uh, ESD uh, could help, but, but what is your take on that? On how to link ESD with quality education? The quality education. Well, uh, yeah, okay. So, so I, th I think the, um, I think uh, the sustainable development goal number four kind of helps us on that one because, as you know, it's goal number four is called quality education, but in there is is uh, ESD is wrapped up in in the uh, in the uh, description there. So, so hopefully everybody looking at that will think, hang on. Uh, quality education and ESD, they seem to be related as far as UNESCO goes and the United Nations um, family of organizations go. And, and that's a good, good thing. So, um, you know, I've got no um, argument with quality education because I mean, everybody wants uh, their child to, let's say, to experience education, which is a good quality. Um, and, and that's great. I think my reservation is when quality education is equated with uh, practices of quality assurance. Um, and quality assurance tends to be very, can be quite judgmental and limiting, depending on who decides what the criteria for quality are. You know, that's, <laughs> that's a sticky issue, if you like. Um, and it worries me a little bit because it can tie things down and not allow the the free flow of ideas and creativity and imagination which i think i think we need in in education and i think is the hallmark of of quality learning actually you know if you see kids who are motivated and excited and curious like little kids are which you know, little kids are just like that um that's what that in a way that's the kind of style it's the kind of feeling we need in sustainability education and I think that is good education so you know quality education yes but not if it actually uh, constrains uh, innovation and experimentation creativity and imagination and so on yeah I mean good education is an education that engages the learner you know that yeah. offers participatory spaces um, for them to engage and use their creativity and that's also at the heart of uh, ESD yeah, so, so I think, you know, I agree that however you argue this, you have to convince policymakers that you know, this approach will actually increase the quality of their education and it will lead to, because it's relevant and, you know, I mean, I, I might say later on one of the questions I know is coming up, you know, I think the, the pressure for change is coming from below and students want schools and uh, universities to really respond to these issues and I think that pressure is going to grow. So policy need, makers need to take account of that uh, and, and quickly. So Steve, you have written uh, so much about system thinking. And I actually have used quite a lot uh, your writings, um, your articles and books and chapters in my own teaching here for the past, I think over 10 years. So your thoughts are actually very much present in our classrooms here in Costa Rica. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your thoughts on system thinking. Um, what does that mean and what are the implications of system thinking to sustainability and to ESD? So, so system thinking. So yes, I've always been interested in this. And um, uh, it's going back to the thing I said just now about how young children learn, you know, I think in a way, and I'm not the only person that said this, that you know, young children, in, the, in a sense, are systems thinkers, in the sense that they, they learn by relate, making relationships. You know? And we tend to, through secondary education in particular, tend to knock that ability out of them. And uh, systems thinking is not really recognized in the secondary curriculum in most countries, I don't think. Um, a few years ago, I was asked to uh, write a school resource pack by WWF Scotland. Uh, to introduce system thinking, and uh, we called it linking thinking, and you can still find it, a link uh, to that on the internet or on my it's website. Very useful. But, yeah, good. <laughs> good. It's very useful so, to the point. So, and my my attempt there was to de demystify system thinking because you know if you say that term, uh, people think, oh my goodness, that sounds far too difficult and technical for me, uh, and I tried to demystify it really. 
um, because you don't have to do a three-year degree in systems thinking to, to really get the idea. Um, but in the linking thinking materials, I make a distinction between um, two types of thinking, if you like. One is one I call box thinking as a metaphor, because it's like a box and it's contained and it's a bit rigid and, and it's thinking within boundaries. And the other type of thinking is more like a web, uh, recognizing interconnections and it's flexible. And but put simply, box thinking is pretty much how most people in the Western world you think. Uh, but web thinking is, is connective and tends to be, well, in history, uh, typified by indigenous cultures, which are much more holistic in the way they see the world. And it's important because, you know, it's been said by many people, everything, everything connects. Um, everything connects to everything else. So nothing exists in isolation. Um, and I mean, associated with those two ways of thinking. Um, so, you know, box thinking, which is linked to reductionist thinking, understands well by, by breaking it down into parts, which is fine uh, and it works. Uh, works quite well, in fact, particularly in engineering and so on. Um, but the other way is to go the other way. Instead of, instead of, instead of breaking into parts, it's looking at relationships and holes and trying to understand phenomena through the relationships involved. Now the question is, how does this relate to that? And that's that's pretty much what systems thinking is. So, it's 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 necessary for working with people and working with living systems to understand them because they're unpredictable. We need to understand connections and relationships rather than discrete events and discrete phenomena, which is better uh, addressed through the reductionist method. So these two methods sit side by side if you like but the world is so in two methods you mean box thinking and system thinking yeah web what? thinking web like a web so system thinking the metaphor is a web reductionist thinking the metaphor is like a box if you like and so, so the two methods is uh, box thinking and web thinking are working together in the classroom environment much more holistic yeah much more holistic looking at, you know like a web it's looking at interconnections and that's pretty much what systems thinking does whereas box thinking but i'm saying using that as a metaphor that we tend to think in boxes so for example uh you know subjects are can be seen as boxes and people don't stray outside their subjects but um but and depart you know the way that schools and universities are organized in departments and silos and so on so this is what i mean by boxes and we need to, to get to a more holistic and transdisciplinary, interdisciplinary view. We need to cross these boundaries and look at connections because the world itself is highly interconnected. Sure. Um, so if I'm a language teacher in a high school, um, can I do system thinking when I teach language or history? Uh, yeah, probably. I mean, if you're looking at, if you're looking at a history, uh, you know, it's, systems thinking is understanding and not just cause and effect but chains of consequences so if you look at events in history where one thing led to another which led to another which led to another that's you know you can under that understand that from a systems point of view um whatever it is i mean you know i mean the causes of the first world war i mean <laughs> something like that you know the very very small, uh, very small um, causes led to a huge, you know, European explosion of war. So, so people use systems thinking to, to try and understand complex interrelationships. But, but I think you can do it, you know, quite simply. And the the linking thinking material show uh, a way of doing that. I think. I mean, the key thing here is that, you know, this gets a little bit philosophical. And I'll try not to, but the. A key, a key way of seeing the world in the Western worldview is this idea of separation from nature and separation from each other. And systems thinking supports a more, what I call a participatory worldview, where all our, all our actions have consequences uh, and where we are more adaptable and flexible and creative. So, so you know, and if we see ourselves interrelated, as interrelated with each other and with the world, then we're much more likely to care and love and feel responsible for our, our actions and our future and this is a participative worldview but it's you know it's um you can lead towards it through systems of systems approaches without getting without getting too technical sure and system thinking is crucial and essential to understand and apply sustainability in everything we do right
Sorry, was that a question? Uh, no, it was a comment. Okay, sorry, I didn't quite hear. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah. Um, can you can you talk a bit? Is there any difference between the concept of system thinking and complexity? What's the relationship? System thinking, complexity. I'm asking this because there are some authors that are uh, advocating for complexity in education. Others are advocating for system thinking in education. Are there any similarities or differences, or is this well? The same? I, I think for the purposes of you know, the, the purposes of the people who may want to listen to this, I wouldn't. I wouldn't worry about it. You know, people in the systems field do make a distinction between systems thinking complexity. It's partly based on uh, the history of these of these movements. And you know, for example, there's not one. There's not one type of systems thinking. There's, there's several, and I don't want to come into into the detail of that. Uh, and people coming out of with, with complexity science were from a different background. Uh, from people involved in systems uh, science and systems thinking, so you have different fields, if you like. Uh, systems thinking tends to be tends to be associated with with uh, problem solving, uh, or, or can be, you know, looking at a situation and trying to improve it. Complexity seems to be is much more. Uh, complexity science is much more about uh, trying to understand um, uh, relationships within a complex whole, rather than trying to trying to um, Change those relationships if you like, but you know, for our purposes, I, I don't think it. I don't think we need to get into that too, too deeply. You know, I, you know, complexity systems, uh, holism, uh, ecological thinking. I, I, these things are all kind of related, if you like. And I mean, my main task for years is just to try to get people to think outside their, their boxes, if you like, to see relationships, and that's that's good enough for me. Yeah, that's wonderful. Okay, thank you. Now, UNESCO has embarked in a, a new process uh, or initiative um, around the futures of education. And uh, I would like to have your take on, on what is your, what's your vision? What do you envision uh, for the future of education in terms of uh, your wish and the reality that you see that may emerge? Uh, what is your what do you think is uh, these major changes in education practice that are inevitable? That's a, that's, <laughs> that's a really big question uh, and it's an important question. Um, I mean everything everything is in flux as we know uh, in wider society um, and you know even in the last year that I think there's encouraging signs of rethinking in in education uh, there's more talk now than ever before of this idea of repurposing repurposing education which i think is key because if you if you change the purpose or aim of an organization then everything else in terms of policy and practice begins to change and this is following you know um, the very well-known systems thinker Danella meadows who came up with these ideas and so so the idea of repurposing in line with what seems to be happening internationally and globally is important. Um, so, you know, ideally, you ask me ideally, then I think, you know, if education is fully aligned to the hope and possibility of a secure, safe and sustainable future, uh, which reduces environmental, environmental impact and uh, help work us with, help help us work within planetary limits and help us build local resilience and well-being uh, that that would be great um you know in terms of what's happening i know there's a lot of work on competences uh, sustainability and competences which i've been involved in a little bit and i see the oecd has produced a learning compass which um, advocates this approach and champions well-being um, which, which is all good, but I, I think we need to, at the same time as sort of reinventing things, I think we need to also have a mind or an eye to critiquing of what's part of the problem already. And I think this is where, I know UNESCO is bound by politics to some extent, but UNESCO tends to fall down and possibly the OECD too, because they don't necessarily critique what the inadequacies are. They just want to um, add a new idea on top of, on top, which, which could be like building an eco house on poor foundations, if you like. So part of my work has always been to try and critique, you know, what's wrong in order to 
come up with something which is which, which is more adequate. Mm. I think in terms of you know if you take if you take the COVID virus, I don't I do want to mention that because uh, you know I think that's leading to questions about the effects of rampant globalization, and I think because of this pandemic and possibly other ones down the line and climate climate crisis as well as limits to resources uh, I think we're going to see a move towards localization socially and economically and maybe maybe we need education for sustainable contraction rather than sustainable development you know I, I, I think this is a you know we can't be, keep increasing everything because all the hockey curves of resource development and pollution always go up and up and up and we, we need to rethink stuff quite quite fundamentally and there's lots of books and reports coming out about this so you know ESD whatever form uh, needs to do better than support a business as usual scenario which takes us down to a disastrous path really I mean the other the other big trend of course is digi digitization of learning which has advantages as we know through the even now you know through using this uh, medium now right now uh, but also disadvantages if it means that people are going to meet and exchange and laugh and hug and have fun together <laughs> much less but also you know digital learning is 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 touted as being the answer to to educational provision but i but it has no intrinsic relation to questions concerning content and ethics which continue to be critical so so you know i, I hope that uh, the vision of a more humane and just and secure world will inform educational thinking um in, into the future but i mean there's so many unknown questions about how the world's going to be in 10 20 30 40 years then i think uh, being flexible and adaptable within educational systems has to be has to be uh key rather than setting things in stone yeah the idea of being flexible and adaptable is, is very important and a good one but in terms of what is your ideal desired scenario for education in the next 10 to 20 years well, I, I think going on what, what I've just said, I, I think uh, I think because of these huge issues, you know, climate crisis being particularly biting or beginning to bite, um, and international politics you know, falling apart really with with uh, you know competition between China and US and the rest of it, I, I think and and resource problems and pollution problems, I, I think we will move towards localization anyway. So um you know whether we like it or not now if we do it in a designed way in a thoughtful way in a considered way we can rebuild and regenerate communities and uh, more local um economic cycles which is which is which is a healthy thing to do you know so so um i think uh, building resilient healthy communities at a local level uh with using digital means for international and global communication but actually a lot of you know a lot of healthy relationships economically socially environmentally um, being regenerated at local level is key for me and sort of reskilling uh, people um, and building community is my preferred uh, scenario if you like but and if you look at people's you know a lot of work's been done on people's preferred futures and all lots of different groups whether they're uh school children or businessmen tend to their preferred future is a green uh sort of localized future funnily enough so a lot of people have a, a similar idea about what what uh, what constitutes a preferred future so i you know i think um with some luck we might move towards that hopefully and um the big agencies like UNESCO and the Sustainable Development Solutions Network um, and OECD and so on, hopefully, will push um, that kind of reform rather than increasing globalized kind of um, testing culture, which I really have some questions about. Yeah, of um, going more local in terms of education doesn't go against the idea of planetary citizenship or earth community uh, 
to be. No, I don't. I don't think it does. I, it, you know, it may, on the face of it, sound like it's a contradiction, but I don't think at all that that's the case. You know, a lot of work has been done on global citizenship, um, which means having an eye to the future, having an eye to the um, the well-being of uh, other peoples and distant peoples. I, I think, you know, I think that you can actually form. Um, so solidarity with others and having a concern for poverty and migration and these issues from the, the place you are, you know, I, I, I really do. And I, I think what globalization has tended to do, maybe unwittingly, is to tended to rip up the, uh, the self-reliance and resilience of local communities, whether it's economically or socially. Um, and cause all kinds of migration and so on, which I think is, you know, is really um, unstable. So, so you know, I, I think a sort of thoughtful relocalization of of uh, economic patterns and social patterns would be would be desire would be desirable. You know, because not least we can't afford the huge carbon cost of of material you know endless materials being shipped around the world and, and millions of people flying all over the shop you know and it's just practical the you know the 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 i think it's the nine uh planetary limits which have, which were set up by the stockholm resilience center some years ago and now are being realized you know i think we've transgressed three planetary limits now and others are in danger of being transgressed so we need to you know we need to contract uh, some of our material expansion and actually put more effort into quality of life rather than quantity. Quality of life rather than quantity, that's a good one. Um, so let's imagine that I am a teacher, uh, could be from a secondary school teacher or a professor of a university. I know nothing about ESD, a little bit about sustainability. So I have two questions for you in that context. How would you convince me to embrace the idea of ESD uh, in an easy way in my own context of teaching? So how would you, would you convince me to embrace that idea and actually apply ESD in my teaching? And what would be your advice or your most important advice for anyone willing to make uh, teaching and learning for sustainability happen in their educational context? Yeah, so... I think uh, the best way to answer this, this is uh, to refer to something I was involved in a few years ago. So we have uh, in the UK uh, an organisation which links the universities, and I've been working in the university sector for some, some long time, and it's changed its name now, but it was called the Higher Education Academy. And they asked me to write a guide for academics who know nothing or little about ESD uh, rather than those who do. So uh, it's called um, the Future Fit Framework, uh, an introductory guide to teaching and learning for sustainability in higher education. And anybody can download that quite easily from the internet. And my, my thinking there was that um, many academics would say, uh, look, I'm busy. I've got no time to take anything else on board and there's enough change going on already. How am I already how am I supposed to cope with new stuff which is fine you know that's that, that's that could be true but I might also say I look at the TV and social media and I see what's going on and I'm concerned for the future and my, my kids at home are concerned and my students are concerned and then they might say I wonder if we're doing enough to prepare students for a changing society and an un uncertain future so that's who that guidance is for and i had a section in that booklet called uh, why bother and this included factors like uh, student concern um, relevance in the curriculum and increasing motivation to learn uh, building community links um, also many institutions particularly higher education are being asked about their sustainability and performance which can be linked to teaching and learning in the institution too. And then also at a practical level, employers are beginning to ask about sustainability related competencies. So these are some of the reasons why to bother. And I, I'll just expand on one of them, which is the student voice, because I mentioned it earlier, but uh, here the uh, UK National, National Union of Students has, 
has been conducting research for more than eight years on student attitudes to sustainability. And year after year, um, the overwhelming majority of respondents say that universities and colleges should, should actively incorporate and promote sustainability education. And then um, a, a brand new student-led organization sprung up last year, sprung up last year here in the UK. And it's called Teach the Future. And they've said that so much of what, this is a quote now, so much of what we learn at all levels is irrelevant to the uncertain future we are inheriting. Our education is out of touch with the future we face. Our generation needs a transformational education if we are to succeed. So, you know, I think the, the pressure from below, if you like, is going to, well, it's already uh, affecting uh, what uh, teachers, lecturers, and policymakers are thinking is should be uh, part of educational provision. But you know, my own view is it's our moral duty to educate for the uncertain and unstable world that students are, inherit are inheriting. And I think if we don't, we're letting young people down, and we need to give them hope. And I think this is where the Earth Charter can be really important by providing a really excellent framework. Uh, which you know, which um, gives a basis to this kind of approach. Wonderful, thank you. So, in terms of how I could apply ESD into my teaching, uh, it could be by helping students look at the future, be easy to adapt to the uncertainties, um, cultivate a sense of hope. Um, and use maybe their shot as, a, as an instrument to stimulate dialogue and understanding. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, what what is what is concerning is a lot. You know, some a lot of students. No, I don't. I'm not sure about it in other countries, but you know, a lot of countries. Sorry, a lot of students are uh, exhibiting signs of uh, anxiety, and the COVID thing has. Uh, fed that, but I think you know the climate crisis is also play, playing on young people's minds. So I think you know as educators we need to really take this on board and 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 work with students as far as policymakers allow us to 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 empower them, if you like, to create you know meaningful uh, learning experiences for them. Um, you know, designing and exploring you know, um, uh, ways and means by which the issues, issues which they identify can, can be tackled. So this, this often means, you know, as far as possible, <laughs> working across boundaries, as I said, uh, as I said earlier, to, so that, you know, instead of being, instead of, Education, this is, this is tricky because, you know, we're actually going counter to educational practice. It goes back decades, but, but we, we need to be able to uh, design learning around issues rather than around subjects. You know, the, the issues will, will define what needs to be learned, you know, whether it's using maths, art, uh, science, uh, drama, whatever it is, to understand, you know, an issue like water pollution or, or um, uh, energy conservation or, or whatever it is, rather than say, well, this is a science lesson and, and you know, and this is a geography lesson and this is a maths lesson or whatever. So <laughs> it sounds radical, but I think students really relate to and become motivated when they're allowed to be imaginative and creative. Uh, by looking at uh, taking issues and owning them. Um, so, for example, you know, when I was at university, um, I remember some uh, students working working on sustainable fashion, and they got really, really motivated by that, and produced posters and so on, and and, and had ex exhibitions for their fellow students and lecturers about all all their findings on sustainable fashion and possible solutions to that. And it was interdisciplinary, you know, and they were motivated. So that's the kind of uh, thing I'd like to see. Mm. I love uh, the way you put it, uh, design learning, design learning around issues rather than yeah. subjects. Um, yeah. It's something I think it's easier for, for any school teacher or principal to understand. Yeah.
But it, and if you know if teachers are interested in this or, or lecturers, I, the other way of looking at this is is from their point of view. And you know, in the if they do look at the future fit framework, which you can download, I've got simple change models there uh, where they can they can look at you know whether it's their university or school strategy or even lectures and lesson plans or faculty or departmental policies or whatever and decide you now what what is still uh, valid and needs keeping in the light of sustainability or what needs revision what needs rejection and what needs uh, what needs innovation and so on so so you know that uh, there are ways of um, provoking and encouraging discussion amongst colleagues to to really look at how you can begin to make small changes which may go further yeah wonderful now steve let's look at some of your writings of course you have decades i think three decades of research writing publications and and teaching so we of course would have to spend a year here just talking about so much that you have uh, written um, I would like to ask you to uh, to be kind enough to share with us uh, some overview of, uh, of some of your writings. Uh, it could be uh, some of your latest writings, something that you were really interested uh, in your later years. But I picked uh, two of your writings. One you, once you published an article in the Journal of Education for Sustainable Development back in 2010, that's called Living in the Earth Towards an Education for Our Times. And uh, there's another one that you published in two, 2011, Sustainable Education, Re-Envisioning Learning and Change. Would you share with us some a gist of, of them? Yeah, okay, so um, uh, you're right, Miriam, I've, I've written so much I get confused myself, really. <laughs> <laughs> about what I've done when um, and I checked out the article and the funny thing is I, I, I had to look, look, look for it this morning and I couldn't find it because I'm such a model you know so, so, on my computer so I couldn't quickly find it but I, I remember it and I remember why I wrote it and I, but what I was surprised by is I wrote it 10 years ago um, and the other uh, living in the earth I'm talking about and then the book uh, sustainable education was actually I guess it was reprinted in 2011, but actually, it's actually first published nearly 20 years ago, 2001. Um, so yeah, I have been working on this this material for a long time and thinking about it. So if I say a little bit about the uh, the paper, the article, "Living in the Earth Towards an Education for Our Times." Um, now that that paper, um, like all my all my work. Um, is informed by a view which I would call uh, essentially relational in nature. So, you know, words like holistic, systemic, ecological um, are descriptors of that, that way of seeing things. And the article emphasizes that we do not so much live on the earth, but in it. Um, in other words, in the, in the earth system where everything we do has effects. Uh, and we are affected by everything else. And I remember an experience um, flying out of London uh, in a plane, obviously. And as we, as the plane rose, we went over a fire. So there's a fire way below on the ground, clearly. And but what we'd be doing is flying through the smoke coming up from the ground. And I thought, well, that's that's just really interesting change of perspective because normally you light a fire and you see the smoke go up and you don't really think about it off it goes uh, but if you're in an airplane you're receiving <laughs> you're receiving the smoke if you see what i mean um and i was thinking well yes you know this is this is uh you know we're living in this ecosphere if you like in this larger earth system and, and the human world we've created within it um, and so we're, we're participants, whether we like it or not, within this wider system. So that, to my mind, that gives us a certain responsibility. You know, we're not separate from each other. We're not separate from nature. Almost everything we do has some kind of effect um, on others and, and on, on the natural world in one way or another. It might be a tiny effect, and it might be large. But, you know, we need to recapture the sense of embeddedness, which indigenous cultures have always had. 
and and therefore you know that leads us to a more ethical and more i think more careful uh way of, of seeing the world um all the time we think we're separate and you know whatever we focus in on doesn't have an effect on others well you know that's that's the recipe for disaster if you like so so the idea of being a participant uh in the wider whole i think is is key and that's what i've tried to get across in this in this paper and with the implications for rethinking education um and then the book i called uh, sustainable education uh, subtitled revisioning learning and change and I remember I coined the term sustainable education rather than sustainability education because I wanted people to um, move if you like from the question how do we education sorry how do we educate for sustainability or sustainable development which is important i'm not saying it isn't but towards a deeper question um, and a deep attention to education itself its policies and purposes and practices in terms of its adequacy for the age we find ourselves in so even though i wrote it 20 years ago it's still relevant and it's still current it's still selling i think um and Really, um, in that book, I'm arguing for a shift of educational culture from a more, from a sort of a, a control paradigm, a managerial, uh, instrumental testing kind of paradigm, which I think, you know, it has run its course, if you like. And I think a lot of teachers and uh, students are suffering, really, from the uh, uh, the limits that kind of way of seeing education puts on imagination and caring and creativity towards a much more humanistic and ecological approach which i've argued for uh, in this little talk and 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 for years really and i think um you know we need to in education which um asserts both humanistic and ecological values and in other words it upholds life affirming values if you like and i think that if that book has been successful which i think it has uh, not to some extent it's because that rings a bell with people you know yeah it really does so and i, I think you know i think part of the, the issue here is if you look at esd um and if i think about unesco and its its plans for the big conference next year and so on. i've looked at the papers informing that conference and i, I think uh unesco have always been in little a little bit in two minds and for the for, for for on the one hand they talk about esd almost as a, as a as a separate topic alongside other educational topics and in another way talk about esd as a sort of harbinger of a different way and a new way of seeing education as a whole so you know you can't have it both ways if you like and i i think we need to see sd as a as a signpost towards a, a deeper and a wider understanding of the kind of education we need for the future we are facing rather than as a separate you know as a separate approach alongside other approaches so that's what I argued for in, in this little book, which is nearly 20 years old, which I can't believe that's the case. Mm -hmm. um, a more ecological uh, approach to education, if you like, more relational approach to education. Um, yeah. Well, just a comment on what you just said about uh, uh, the current work of uh, UNESCO on ESD. Uh, there's just one point that sometimes I see that is good, that is when they see ESD as an opportunity to reorient and rethink education towards a new paradigm. Another yeah. thing is when, when their discussions are limiting ESD for the SDGs. Yes. It's kind of reducing, going backwards um, yeah. with the possibilities around the ESD movement. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think the SDGs are, um, you know, they're, <laughs> uh, they're great in some respects. They really do, uh, they really sparked a lot of debate and good practice. But if that becomes the whole of it, 
then that becomes a little worrying too. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying they're not important, they are important, but um, they can be constraining. And, you know, I, I, my argument, which I've written in other, in other places, is, is um, another article I did for the Journal of EST actually, um, was making the argument that we need to look at what conditions made the SDGs necessary in the first place. Now, what is it about the way we've organized ourselves and the way we think and the way we do things that made the SDGs necessary, if you see what I mean? So that's a, that's a deeper question, because unless we actually look at the patterns which have led to environmental deterioration and loss of biodiversity and inequity and poverty and climate crisis and so on, unless we look at those, those governing factors, the root factors, um, we're still on the same path. Um, maybe a bit more slowly uh, through the SDG. So, yeah, so SDGs, yes, good, uh, let's do it, but let's look at some deeper questions too. Mm -hmm. And we should not miss the opportunity of the current movement on rethinking education to limit it to the SDGs, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Now, yeah, yeah. I have to... I have just one last question to you, but before that, I want to make a comment. Um, I feel that I have been following you for the past 15 years, uh, following you through your writing. Uh, I was very honored to have you here actually teaching. You, I think you took, you, you taught the first course on ESD at the University yeah. for Peace when we uh, yeah. launched our our new building, the Earth Center. I remember it well. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it was actually wonderful, a wonderful experience for me and for our uh, students at the University for Peace to, to have the opportunity to have you here. And uh, you really taught that first course at, that, was, that took place in our Earth Child Education Center. So I, I want to share with you that um, among the many things that I have learned with you uh, in our interactions uh, and mostly through your writings is your wonderful ability to question and to ask questions <laughs> and uh, i think it's it's such a a gift that you have uh, because your questions intrigue thinking and uh, yeah. I think it's a yeah. wonderful element uh, that I have learned from you. And I think it's uh, inevitable and important uh, when we are looking at or ways to, to reorient education uh, in the current time. So I want to, to say this because I want to express my appreciation. Thank you. Well, I, I, would just, I would just say that you know, asking questions is a noble tradition. And it is, goes back at least to Socrates, you know, the Greek philosopher who, who went around asking, all, he never offered any answers, he went around asking all, all, all the questions the whole time, to the extent he made himself very unpopular and they put him to death. So <laughs> I hope that doesn't apply to me. But you know, the Socratic method is now known, you know, well known globally as a, a way of asking um, questions that need to be asked, if you like. You know? So it's a, it's a noble tradition asking questions. And I think we should always be asking questions of ourselves and others about whether what we're doing is, is you know, appropriate and sufficient, if you like. Yeah, yeah and I, I did a research on how, how to go about in terms of uh, values education through the lens of their chatter. And of course, asking questions is a key element, but the point is that not many teachers, professors, are really skilled in asking good questions. And therefore, it's hard to stimulate uh, the engagement of, of students. Mm. So I, I now have the last question. Um, it's your, from your own experience as a, as a teacher, or even as a student, um, were there, is there any aha moment, uh, one of the most impactful moments uh, in that experience you have had uh, in the education setting that you comes to your mind and that you could share with us? Do you mean, do you mean for me? Yes, for you as a, as a your you as an actor in the learning, teaching and learning environment, was there any 
key moments that you could share with us of, oh, that is something that really uh, still stands up, stands with me? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a good question because in a sense, my, you know, my transformative moments happened uh, in my teens, you know, uh, almost independent of school. Um, so, you know, when I was, when I was mid-teens or something, I, I, I had a number of what I would call ecological realizations. So um, one was, you know, saying all flesh is grass, you know, that everything, everything relates on the plant, everything uh, it depends on, on the health of the plant world, um, primarily, you know, and uh, that, that, was, that was quite a realization for me. And I think a lot of people still haven't quite grasped that. Um, <laughs> um, um, yeah. What was that moment that you realized that? Uh, I can't remember the, the, I can't uh, remember the, I can't remember the, the details of it. Uh -huh. um, but this, this sort of idea that, um, uh, everything relates to everything else. That also hit me around about the around about the same time. Um, so yeah, so so I had a sort of evolving evolving consciousness over over time, if you like. And uh, um, the the these all the debate that went around the, the Stockholm Conference on the Human Environment, nineteen seventy two. Uh, was very formative for, for me. There's a book, the book came out written for that period called Only One Earth, The Care and Maintenance of a Small Planet, uh, written by a woman called Barbara Ward, 1972. Um, and I read the whole thing cover to cover and, <laughs> uh, and also a book by um, Paul Ehrlich called Population and Resources in an Environment, 1971, and then The Limits to Growth, also I think 1971. These all had a profound effect on me. Um, so it was, it was like, uh, I was, I was, these are self-generated learning, if you like, if you like, rather than, rather than school or university generated. Um, but it did change, it did change my thinking a lot, um, towards how we relate to the natural world initially. That was my first realization. And then, um, Fitchoff Kapka's book, the, the Turning Point, which I think came out in 1982 was another aha moment. Um, where he really looked at um, the the patterns of new movements, you know, in various aspects of human endeavour, and link them all together as a as a as a holistic approach, a holistic response to the more mechanistic way that humans had done things for years, if you like. Um, and that, I would still recommend that book, 1982. So these are all sort of moments in a journey for me, if you like. And uh, but in terms of, I, I'm going to actually I'm going to contradict myself by saying um, there was a moment when I was 12, actually, <laughs> an awful long time ago, uh, in school, and we had an English teacher, and he was quite interested in. Um, in, in topical issues, if you like, and he got us to look at different newspapers. Um, and until that point, I thought all newspapers pretty much just said what the news was. You know, that's, that's their function as a newspaper. But what he got us to understand is different newspapers have different takes on topics. Um, so, you know, um, one newspaper would say that the, the the um, topic looked like this. Another newspaper would say it looked like that. And I suddenly thought, actually, you know, I, don't, I may not use these terms, but uh, values, you know, values informing people's thinking is key to it, to understanding them. You know, and that was a bit of an eye-opening moment at the age of twelve, if you like. And that was that was in school. Yeah, I remember that. That's wonderful. <laughs> you're a twelve-year-old, and you're already opening your eyes that there were different angles of looking at the same thing. Yeah, yeah, sure, that's right. And I, at the same time, I was also reading, uh, 1962, um, excerpts of Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, which was huge, you know, it had a massive impact internationally. Uh, and that was about um, how DDT, which is subsequently banned as an insecticide, was affecting wild birds because it's uh, bioaccumulation, the, the, the the toxins were getting into 
uh, birds and into their eggs, which weren't hatching. So, um, uh, so silent spring, you know, again, there was an awakening to me about you know, ecology, if you like, and how all these things relate. Uh, again, I was, I was just 12, so I was thinking, mm, maybe the world's not quite as good as I thought it was, you know. There's <laughs> a few issues to be sorted here. <laughs> uh, and it's been like that ever since, of course. Wonderful. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing just a little bit of your vast knowledge and experience uh, in these topics that are of great interest to all of us. Well, it's, it's, it's been a real pleasure, Miriam, and also to, to talk to you. And I hope people find it helpful. Um, if you're interested in finding out more about my work and my writing, if I can do a quick plug for my website, which is www sustainable sustainable education that's all one word dot co dot uk uh, you'll find a lot more of my my material there yeah and i highly recommend we have been using some of it uh for years yeah in the work we do and it's a great inspiration to us thank great. you thanks so much If you like this episode, please share it and support our movement by making a donation. This podcast is developed by Earth Charter International as part of our work as UNESCO Chair on Education for Sustainable Development with the Earth Charter. For more information, visit our website at earthcharter.org.